The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on the drums. Welcome to another episode of Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. My name is Alex Doherty and my guest today is Leader Maxwell. We spoke about Leader's new book, Insurgent Truth, Chelsea Manning and the Politics of Outsider Truth-Telling. We discussed the contrasting nature of the disclosures of Chelsea Manning and Edward Snowden and the way Manning's leaks placed her outside the lineage of respectable whistleblowing. We also talked about the relationship between Manning's gender identity and how her experience of living under Don't Ask, Don't Tell in the US military informed her broader critique of American foreign policy. And we also chatted about the post-truth era and whether a return to the certainties of the pre-financial crisis period is possible. Today's show is brought to you by PTO supporters on Patreon and also by Haymarket Books, which has a great many left-wing titles that might be of interest to listeners. Amongst its other titles, Haymarket publishes the Historical Materialism book series, a major publishing initiative of the radical left, in affordable paperback editions. The peer-reviewed series seeks to publish the best of critical Marxist theory, with titles having won the prestigious Isaac and Tamara Deutsche Prize on multiple occasions, with original monographs, translated texts and reprints of classics across the bounds of academic disciplinary agendas and across the divisions of the Marxist tradition, the series aims to foster vigorous intellectual debate and exchange on the left. Recent and forthcoming books in the series include Crisis Movement Strategy, The Greek Experience, edited by Panagiotis Satouris, and Marx, Women and Capitalist Social Reproduction by Martha Jimenez, and The Jewish Question by Enzo Traverso. For more details, visit haymarketbooks.org. As always, you can listen to PTO on iTunes, Acast, SoundCloud, Blueberry and Spotify. And you can also follow the show on Facebook and Twitter. The handle is at Poll Theory Other. And if you enjoy the show, please do consider rating or reviewing it on iTunes. It makes a big difference in helping the show to reach new listeners. If you would like to, you can also support the show by donating through Patreon. You can become a supporter for as little as $3 a month, which is just over £2. And by becoming a patron, you'll get access to extended versions of PTO episodes, including today's interview. You can find the Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash poll theory other. Leda Maxwell is Associate Professor of Political Science and Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies at Boston University. She's the author of Public Trials, Burke, Zola, Arendt and the Politics of Lost Causes, the co-editor of Second Nature, Rethinking Nature Through Politics, and the co-author of The Right to Have Rights. Her articles have appeared in Political Theory, Contemporary Political Theory, and Theory and Event. Her most recent book, Insurgent Truth, Chelsea Manning and the Politics of Outsider Truth-Telling, which was the topic of our conversation, is out now from Oxford University Press. In the preface to the book, you contrast two different dissident truth-tellers, one real and and one mythical. 
in order to tease out the difference between somebody like Chelsea Manning and, and whistleblowers such as Edward Snowden and, and Daniel Ellsberg. And the two figures you compare are, are Socrates and, and the mythical figure of Cassandra, who's uh, you know, famously her, her curse was to make prophecies that while true, uh, were never believed. So could you talk a little bit about the contrast that you're making between those two figures? So I start the book with that because in my field in political theory, but I think also, I think also in the world, at least in the West and the United States, that Socrates um, is often held up as kind of the ideal truth teller as someone who, um, you know, told the truth and, and he staked his life on it. You know, I mean, he died. He was put on trial and uh, convicted of corrupting youth and accepted death. Uh, as a punishment. Um, and that this is someone, you know, who we should emulate. And you see Martin Luther King Jr. referring to Socrates, you see, um, obviously, Thoreau referring to Socrates. So there's this whole tradition of thinking about what it means to tell the truth in public, in politics, that begins with Socrates. And what I found interesting about that is how, you know, Socrates is a super important figure for us, I think. I mean, he's someone who said, you know, political order is great. Well, I don't know. He didn't say that. <laughs> he would not say that political <laughs> order is great, but that political or order can be valuable, but it's not valuable if we're doing injustice, right? And mm. I think that's, uh, that's important, obviously. But what we lose from view then are people who are not even recognized as truth tellers, um, as someone who is, in fact, speaking truth that we need to hear. Um, and Socrates was, you know, he was a citizen in Athens. He was uh, respected and loved by a certain portion of the Athenian elite. Um, whereas if you look at someone, a mythical figure like Cassandra, um, she was, as you said, right, never actually seen as a truth teller. <laughs> she yeah. was um, someone who was saying Troy is going to fall, right? Uh, we are going to lose. We are going to be defeated, right? When she's uh, taken by Agamemnon back to his home, she's telling him, right, you're going to be killed, right? But no one can understand her. No one can see her as a truth teller. And I think that's a really important kind of uh, difference between her and Socrates. And by looking at her and thinking about the significance of her as a truth teller, I think it opens up a different way of thinking about um, what kinds of truth telling is important to politics and that maybe, you know, we don't just need to be looking at the people who we see, right, who are clearly speaking truth about injustice, right, who are recognized by at least, you know, certain majority segments of the society as speaking the truth. But what about the people who are telling us things we need to hear, but are seen as not credible, right, who are seen as suspect, who are seen as mad, which is how Cassandra was seen? And how do we start to think about them as doing something productive for us as well? So that was kind of the, um, the my interest in opening up with that is like putting Cassandra front and center and saying, what happens, right, if we look at truth telling from the perspective of people who follow, uh, follow Cassandra's model more than Socrates? So in terms of the different truths that these two figures are, are, are bringing to light, I mean, in the book, you, uh, I mean, perhaps it's, it's um, too neat to put somebody yeah. like Edward Snowden in the position of Socrates and, and Chelsea Manning in the position of, of Cassandra. But, but, but nonetheless, you argue that certain forms of revelations, and we might include Snowden's revelations around privacy, um, that those forms of truth-telling can be uh, useful to an extent to the maintenance of what you call 
uh, truth security regimes yeah. and that these sort of crises of accountability are, are often helpful to the health of the system. Um, I mean, is that a, a reasonable reading? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so as you're saying, like, it's not just right that Cassandra is seen as illegible, socially illegible because she's a woman, for example, um, uh, instead of a man, right, because she uh, resisted Apollo, right? Uh, famously, the story is that like Apollo cursed her um, after she refused to have sex with him, right? So that she becomes this illegible, uh, socially illegible being because she refused, you know, the sexual advances of a god, of a man, et cetera. It's not just that. It's also that she's telling truths that are really, you know, um, unsettling, deeply unsettling to her society. She's not just saying that, you know, um, Troy's going to lose. She's saying the whole thing is corrupt, right? <laughs> she's mm. saying that war is um, brings death and destruction to all of us, right? That it's not about glory, right? Um, which obviously in the Homeric tradition, you see, you know, war is glory, et cetera. Um, but war is about death, destruction, right? About um, all of us losing everything, right? War doesn't bring anything good. And no one wants to hear that, right, <laughs> in, um, in Troy. Um, so it's someone who is um, socially illegible uh, to a certain degree, right? Um, but also who's saying truths that, uh, that society finds really hard to hear. And, um, and I think, you know, I do in the book contrast like Snowden and Chelsea Manning in this way as well. And Snowden, you know, obviously told important truths about um, what the NSA was doing, about... Um, you know, uh, illegally listening to so many of us, um, who knows, you know, probably still listening. But, uh, but what Snowden was saying is like, look, the government has um, gone too far, right? We need to pull it back, get accountability, have it respect um, our privacy, right? We need it to follow the rules, essentially. And Chelsea Manning's leaks were totally different, right? I mean, <laughs> she leaks huge amounts of documents that no one person could possibly read all of about the Afghan war, about the Iraq war, about mm. U.S. diplomacy abroad. And, you know, the message of these huge leaks is that the whole thing, like Cassandra, right? The whole thing is corrupt. Like, look at what war is, right? We're killing civilians. We're torturing detainees, right? Where um, we say we're, you know, trying to aid these governments, but in fact we're helping them punish dissidents, right, etc. Um, and so it's a really different kind of truth telling that, you know, is asking us to look around and say, you know, <laughs> um, it's not just that there's one abuse, right? It's not just that there are like these bad apples out there that the NSA is corrupt. It's that we're living in a society that sanctions this kind of war, right? And it's hurting all of us. And so for that reason, somebody like Snowden is able to acquire a certain elite constituency for his position, mm -hmm. um, whether that's within the liberal media or, or, or the Democrats. And that just isn't the case for somebody like Chelsea Manning, in your view. No. Um, I mean, I found it very interesting. I mean, the reason why I started thinking about this at all was because early on, you know, I found... Uh, Chelsea Manning, uh, the original leaking, interesting. And so I started reading more about her. And at the time, no one was talking about her gender identity, like in 20, like she leaked documents in 2010. And in, you know, 2011, when I started working on this, as far as I know, really no one uh, in her, of her defenders was talking about uh, her gender identity, about, you know, some people were talking about her sexuality, but they were all really trying to keep that, um, on the side, right? Not central uh, in her case. 
and I think they saw it as a, as a danger, um, that if, you know, this comes out, she looks less credible, et cetera. And I mean, on the one hand, they're right, but also in defending her in this way and the people who are defending her, you know, were, you know, did really important things like Len Greenwald, Chase, uh, Vidar, Daniel Ellsberg came out uh, for Chelsea Manning. Um, there were other important people, but those are some important voices. And, you know, what they, their defense is crucial, right? You know, she needs defenders. But the way that they told her story really kind of reenacted the kind of marginalization um, that uh, Chelsea Manning was already experiencing, right? That, like, in order to be heard, right, at all was, I think, implicit in their defense of her. Um, you know, she had to look... Uh, you know, at the time, like not as a trans female, right? Um, as uh, a soldier doing it on behalf of the public good, right? More like someone like Snowden, um, who obviously had not told the truth yet, but more like an Ellsberg model and more like uh, the Snowden that we would see soon thereafter. That felt need to interpolate Manning in these conventional terms of, of, of historic whistleblowing. Do you think that might have also perhaps gone as far as treating the revelations themselves in a way that didn't really underscore the kind of totalizing character of, of what she was doing, that it was this kind of much more mm. broad, substantial critique uh, rather than the sort of narrower position that one sees with, with somebody like Socrates or, or with, or with yeah. Edward Snowden. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, in a, in a way, I d I'm not sure that we've really seen, you know, someone uh, in the, you know, the, the Guardian has run a bunch of stories at the time, or they ran a bunch of stories on, uh, the leaks and showing their significance in terms of like, you know, particular abuses in the Afghan war, the Iraq war. But in terms of like taking it all together, you know, and <laughs> saying what picture of the United States, you know, and its role abroad and at home do these leaks give us? I mean, I don't think we've really seen that. I mean, I think you're right, like that, um, that we're much more accustomed to hearing leaks like that or seeing them and thinking, oh, what particular abuse are they letting us know about? Right. What kind of what kind of accountability should we seek um, instead of seeing it as telling a much uh, broader and bigger story about, you know, who we are as a people and, and what we're doing abroad, et cetera. And I would like, you know, I, I hope someone, you know, I, I kind of obviously wrote that in my book, but I, I, I would love to see somebody write that, um, you know, uh, in the, in a uh, bigger, you know, in a uh, public venue. Sure. I mean, I think, you know, when it comes to The Guardian, I think the, the commitment to the sort of um, essentially benign nature of the United States is, 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 you know, maybe not quite the same as in the US, but it, it right. remains, you know, <laughs> significant. And uh, yeah. that tendency to see Trump as an aberration and um, yes, yes, and so yes, to look to like restore us, right, to um, to having a, a an essentially good role in the world, right? Exactly. Instead yeah. of seeing um, our current actions and you know, uh, at the time, like in 2010, what was happening in Afghanistan and Iraq as part of a much longer and deeper story is something that's, um, yeah, that's hard to find in the, in the mainstream press. So, I mean, in, t in terms of Manning's gender identity, you point to this early profile of, of Chelsea Manning in, in the New York Times, in which the, the journalist Ginger Thompson alleged that Manning was motivated by personal interest to, to leak material, including revenge for experiencing mm -hmm. uh, bullying in the military and, and the experience of living under don't ask, don't tell. 
and and instead of of rebutting that charge, and as you say, you know, people like uh, Glenn Greenwald, you know, that that was a position they took. They would sort of rebut that in order to place Manning within that lineage of of conventional whistleblowers. But you argue that in some sense Thompson is correct and that also that it's a mistake to attempt to try and separate out what we think of as the conventionally political in what Manning was doing and and the personal. Could you could you speak a little bit more about that? Yeah, definitely. So G- Ginger Thompson writes his profile, which is, you know, in my view, pretty formative in terms of how uh, the press goes on to tell Chelsea Manning's story for the first little bit, which is like, Chelsea Manning is bullied, right, in the army. Chelsea Manning is, um, you know, experiencing distress under don't ask, don't tell, which was the policy at the time that, you know, you could stay in the army if you were um, queer, right, if you were gay or lesbian, um, as long as you didn't tell anyone, right, as long as you yeah. just kept it to yourself, right? Um, and so living under that uh, had made Chelsea Manning angry. There's also the stuff about delusions of grandeur, right? I mean, so this the idea being that Chelsea Manning, you know, probably wasn't doing this for the public good, but out of personal reasons. So there's something about that story that's right, even if I think Ginger Thompson doesn't get draw the correct conclusion from it, which is that I think that Chelsea Manning's experiences under Don't Ask, Don't Tell as a, you know, at the time queer, uh, gender nonconforming person in the army um, really dovetailed uh, and connected with her um, experiences of another kind of secrecy in the army, which is um, being asked to keep secret uh, classified uh, U.S. Um, actions in Iraq. Um, so that these two forms of secrecy, uh, I think for Manning were ultimately connected in the kinds of, um, oppression that she felt under don't ask, don't tell, and the kinds of oppression that were being enacted, um, on the Iraqi people. And I think for Manning also on the American public, which did not, uh, she, she thought was kind of, did not have this information about what was going on in Iraq. So, so let me just say what I what I mean by that, um, which is that, uh, so there's this key moment for Chelsea Manning that she narrates in this set of chat logs that I draw a lot from in the book. Um, these chat logs between Manning and this guy, Adrian Lamo, who ultimately turns her in, um, to the FBI. Lamo is a hacker. She turns to Lamo for help. I mean, it's a whole other story. And, um, and they have these extensive chats and then he turns them over and turns her in. Um, so in these chat logs, which Wired magazine made uh, available to the public, Lamo gave them to Wired. Chelsea Manning tells Lamo that there's this uh, one crucial moment where she kind of realizes the bankruptcy of what uh, the American approach to, to uh, the war in Iraq. And it's this moment where um, she's been asked to kind of uh, get this uh, pamphlet, I think, translated um, that... Uh, uh, some uh, Iraqis were uh, having disseminated and um, she gets it translated and it turns out it's just like a political critique. Like, you know, in the, in the U.S., it's like, a, a you know, allegations. Or I don't mean in the U.S., sorry, <laughs> but that we, we might see in the U.S. as, you know, allegations of corruption, right, by the government that we would think of as like, you know, free speech, um, and uh, in Iraq, Chelsea Manning says, realizes that the U.S. government um, is helping the Iraqi forces track down the people who published this pamphlet so that they can be detained and perhaps uh, tortured, etc. And so um, she has this realization in this moment 
that, you know, <laughs> what they're doing is not, not for the good. And she rushes to her commanding officer and she's like, there's been a mistake, right? Why are we helping them track down these people? They're just political dissidents, right? They're just, you know, making an argument about corruption. And the commanding officer tells her to shut up, right? <laughs> like, shut up, do your job, help them find these people. And in that moment, she realizes that, um, you know, she can't, she can't be a part of that anymore. And I see what happens in that moment is that she's being commanded to be this like docile soldier, right? To um, follow orders, to not tell the truth, right? And she feels that is deeply oppressive. And she also thinks that it's um, this kind of secrecy is allowing for the oppression of people in Iraq. And that um, if this information were given to the American public, that things might change. At the same time, she's experiencing a bunch of harassment about her gender nonconformity and her, um, at the time, her queer sexuality. And she is having this experience of being what she calls a ghost, right? Where um, she has to keep herself kind of hidden, even as people are ridiculing her, right? Disciplining her, like trying to make her be like traditionally masculine. So like in all of this, I, what I see is secrecy, not as like somebody being, uh, push to just keep silent, right? Or just to like hide things from view. But secrecy is like trying to make Chelsea Manning into a certain kind of person. And at the same time, like to make us and to make the Iraqis into certain kinds of people um, in an oppressive way, obviously. And so when Chelsea Manning tells the truth, I see her as not just like saying, hey, we need accountability about these facts, but wanting to change the world, like wanting to make the world into a place where like, uh, she can be seen as like a real truth teller and where the, this truth that she's telling can have meaning and response from the public, right? From others, instead of it being something that has to be hidden so that this oppressive war in Iraq can continue. I mean, on that point about Manning conceiving of herself as a, as a ghost and, and the, the notion of, of haunting, I mean, it made me think of again the figure of of cassandra who in some sense is visible but 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 not visible but invisible yeah yeah so yeah it's this experience i think of being like visible is what you uh in a way that you don't identify right that, that you don't feel like is you right which is this like you know person in chelsea manning's case who looks like uh, improperly public, right? Kind of like, uh, not masculine enough, right? Not, um, not a good enough soldier, right? Not docile enough. Um, and so very visible, right? In that way, which mm. calls all this discipline and violence upon you. And at the same time, invisible is who you are. Yeah. I mean, it's the same with, um, Cassandra. Absolutely. And is there also a kind of a notion of of haunting in terms of of, of a bad conscience or, or or other possibilities? You know, it made me think of mm. uh, even even Marx and you know the idea of you know a spectre is haunting Europe. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, right, the the invisibility comes at our peril, right? <laughs> like that um, that uh, you know, starting to figure out how we can create like. Um, uh, spaces, you know, or, um, ways of, well, I don't know, it's a little vague, but like ways of, um, speaking and listening where Chelsea Manning can become more visible as who she is, right? Um, really is productive and important for the United States, 
even though it feels right, like very threatening, like a <laughs> a ghost, right, who's threatening to undo us. Um, and she is, I mean, but in a, you know, I think a, a more positive way. Going back to the actual practice of, of leakage, of putting this stuff out in the world. So if I were to sort of imagine myself in that experience, you know, I imagine it as being a very sort of fraught, frightening experience. I imagine feeling incredibly anxious. But you have this really interesting example in the book where Manning revealed that during, you know, this moment of, of, um, of releasing these enormous uh, amounts of, of data, she was listening to and, and lip syncing <laughs> to uh, a Lady Gaga um, mm-hmm. song. Um, And you you could sort of imagine how critics of Manning or even uh, people who want to defend her would would view that. They would think, oh, this looks really frivolous. It it seems to betray (laughs) a lack of seriousness about what you're doing. And it might, you know, time with the notion that that, that Manning is is doing this for not the best best reasons. But I mean, how how do you interpret that, that situation that she describes? See, I love that moment. Yeah, <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, I think, I think there are a couple things, um, you know, that I, I see in it at least. And one is that, you know, I think it, you know, it was for her, you know, at least from what I've read, um, a very anxiety producing and she's looking hmm. to Labo, right, in the chat logs to, you know, have someone to talk to about it, to figure out, you know, what she's doing and, um, how to, uh, how she wants to narrate her own story. Right. But in that moment, you know, it's, it's like, so Lady Gaga, right. Obviously is, is herself a little bit, you know, gender nonconforming, like, you know, or at least she was at the time. I mean, I don't know what's going on with her now. <laughs> um, I, I wasn't that clear um, at the time. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, and so I think that there's a way in which, you know, Chelsea Manning listening to her, it's a way of like reaching out, you know, like reaching out to this figure um, who is nonconforming, who's a little bit queer in her performance style, at least, um, and allowing herself to experience pleasure, right, in um, this moment of saying, you know, I'm going to work to make the world in the way that uh, feels uh, like it would be freer and more equal and more just for me and people like me. Um, and why shouldn't it be pleasurable? You know, like we have, mm. um, I think we worry sometimes that if, you know, if it's pleasurable, then we're just, just out for like, um, you know, for our own interests. Like you said, we just want the rush, you know, is she just after the rush or the whatever? But, uh, I think that it's this experience of pleasure that sometimes allows people to trust in themselves and, um, be able to engage in these acts that aim at changing the world. And that's like how I read um, Audrey Lord in the book as, as saying like, you know, that people who are marginalized, who are oppressed are not just silenced. They're taught to distrust themselves, right? To distrust their own voices and their own sense of reality. And that it's really through reaching out to other outsiders and having them affirm you um, that you start to trust your own voice. And that that's an experience of pleasure, that that pleasure in that reaching out and connection helps you kind of take the step of saying, this is my reality. You know, this is what I need. This is what we need. This is what we demand. Um, and so I see, you know, the Manning's encounter with Lady Gaga as something in that, in that register. And I mean, th- that perspective from, from Audrey Lord, you sort of contrast that with perhaps a, a slightly more naively individualist 
uh, view, which sees just the fact of being marginalized as conveying the ability to see things that other people can't see uh, by the very fact of, of being, being an outsider. Yes. And that's, I mean, that's Virginia Woolf's view. I mean, uh, mostly, I think there are some moments that, you know, uh, go against that in her, in her writings, but but I bring that out from her wonderful book, Three Guineas, um, which I love, which is a fabulous book um, about how, you know, she writes that book in 1938, you know, uh, about how fascism in Italy and Germany isn't just the enemy, right? We have fascism at home and patriarchy and capitalism and militarism, right? And I mean, that must have been, you know, super popular view at the time. Um, but uh, but she writes that book. But she argues that women are best equipped to stand up, you know, to to show this reality because they have been excluded from public life, and that the fact of exclusion gives them this ability to see the truth. And I think with Lord that that um, that discounts the ways in which the the forces that Wolf is diagnosing. Uh, patriarchy, capitalism, oh, also imperialism, militarism, really often um, shape the view of the marginalized um, and uh, tell them, right, that they they are not trustworthy, right, that they don't know what they're talking about, right? And um, Wolf maybe, you know, didn't see this. I mean, she was obviously white, obviously grew up in some situation of privilege, Um and I think so that... So what she was saying may have been true for her and her, her friends, but yeah. not, not more broadly. Yeah, and I think that um, uh, Audre Lorde and other black feminists like Bell Hooks and Patricia Hill Collins really show the importance of, uh, you know, getting together as outsiders and um, affirming each other and uh, learning, right, to trust one's own perceptions of reality and one's own situation as a, as a part of telling the truth. On the question of truth, so obviously the whole notion of, of truth-telling and, and, and also whistleblowing is tied up with the idea of facts, of, of self-evident facts. But in the book, you point out that the historical emergence of that idea, of, 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 um, of the idea of, of the facts within the empiricist tradition, that that sort of necessitated the exclusion and invalidation of certain experiences and, and speakers. Could you say something on that, that question? Yeah, yeah. I mean, and in this argument, like I'm drawing on kind of an older uh, line of scholarship, which was historians of science like Mary Poovey and Stephen Shapin in the um, 90s, especially, who kind of dug in and said, well, what, you know, how did this idea of the fact emerge, right? How did we start thinking about truth in this way? And what they show, uh, Poovey especially, is that uh, the rise of the idea of the fact, right? The idea that, you know, what truth is, is like giving us this little nugget, like, um, this is an example from Hannah Arendt's writing, uh, Germany invaded Belgium in, oh, now I don't remember the year, 1914, <laughs> but Arendt, Arendt uses that as an example of like a self-evident fact that really should never change, never be challenged, etc. And we have this idea that that's what truth telling is and that that's what, you know, scientists do, that if you're telling the truth, you're giving us this like nugget, like Snowden did, right? Like the NSA... Um, you know, illegally uh, is engaging in wiretaps, etc. Um, and that really was uh, the idea of the fact emerged out of a particular uh, historical conjuncture. And so Puvi shows how you have like the rise of capitalism, you have uh, the rise of um, 
like writing along with capitalism is like this bourgeois uh, way of keeping records, right, among the merchant class. And my favorite part of her story is the rise of uh, double entry bookkeeping. And so she says how um, merchants, you know, they used to just like keep a record of transactions. So you'd usually have a woman or a young person at the counter in the front and they would like say, all right, I just, you know, sold some, I don't know what they were selling, um, sold some ship parts to, you know, this person for this amount of money. And they said they would pay at this time, you know, um, so that you'd have this like record of transactions. So double entry bookkeeping takes that record, right? And transitions it into bookkeeping where you have two columns, right? Debits and credits. And it makes everything look like it's balanced, right? Like, look, this, you know, this person is paying me this and I'm paying out this. And it makes everything look kind of certain and predictable, right? And um, like these little nuggets. Um, and so what Puvi says is like, what this does is it kind of, uh, it makes the original record of transaction, right? Just the experience, right? <laughs> the person um, selling uh, and buying. It makes it look kind of uncertain and risky. So the testimony of women, of children, right? Of young people. Um, starts to look like not a, a secure basis on which to mount like future plans for business, government, etc. And the records kept in double entry bookkeeping start to take on this like aura of certainty, right? And they're actually hiding a bunch of risk, right? Like you don't know if you're going to get paid, right? You don't know if things are going to work out the way they look in the books, but it looks really certain and stable. And so for her, like the fact, you know, emerges out of this territory, right? That that the state wanted merchants to have this kind of certain stable description of like where business is at the moment and that that helped the state to make plans. And so the idea of the fact is kind of a corollary to the emergence of capitalism um, and to the emergence of the modern state, that by having facts, you get this stable basis on which like diverse people can make plans together in the modern state. Um, and what Shapin shows in his social history of the fact is that it's not just you get the rise of the modern fact, but also how do we know, you know, how do we decide who we trust um, to tell us facts, right? <laughs> like I could say, you know, I sold, you know, these are my books, right? But how do we know whether to trust you? And Shapin argues that this, uh, he, he's more interested in early modern science, but that the way that that question was negotiated was through recourse, uh, recourse to codes of gentlemanly conduct. So you get people, you know, people who look like gentlemen who know how to behave, right, politely, um, uh, start to look like what truth telling looks like. So it's not like, you know, uh, their stories aren't saying like, there's no truth, right, which is how they're often read, like as nihilist. What they're showing is that we have a particular modern way of presenting truth that we've come to naturalize and to think is um, uh, self-evident. And that if we challenge, you know, those codes of telling of what we think of as truth telling, you know, we start to think, oh, there's no truth. But actually, you know, it's just a way that we've come to think of, uh, especially in the train of capitalism, as being uh, natural. My one response to that be to say that if we're to talk about facts at all, if we're to talk, to talk about truth, then there's always an inevitable 
degree of exclusion just because of the, yeah. the, the, the vastness and multiplicity of, of reality that we have to exclude certain things in order to, to talk about anything in order to, to, to make, make plans. So what would a, yeah. you know, what would a more, more just notion of, of, of truth that would still allow us to, to act in the world be? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and I should have said, you know, I just want to make sure I'm clear that like, there's been a lot of good stuff that's come with the modern fact, you know what I mean? Like, mm, modern sure. science, you know, there are a lot of really important things that modern science does, you know, yeah, uh, this is not an anti-vaccine is, you know, show. No, 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 no. And it's yeah. not, um, you know, I'm not like anti-fact. But just to point out, I mean, as you said, that it it has these kind of built-in exclusions that often work anti-democratically. So you asked, um, you know, so what would a, a more just kind of more democratic approach to truth be? And I don't know if I have a great answer to that, um, though I think it's a really important question. But I think one way is by like making room to at least give a, a greater hearing to people like Chelsea Manning and to other outsider truth tellers um, and to try to to make room at the table for thinking about how we might address the reality that they're revealing democratically, not to see their revelations, like not to see Chelsea Manning's revelations as like, um, like they're not prescribing a course of action. You know mm. what I mean? Like she's not saying uh, we have to do X, Y, and Z, but instead to figure out how we can cultivate the capacity to see the reality that she's revealing as part of our reality and to, you know, I mean, this, this is like part of a broader question of like, how do we, (laughs) how do we um, start to be able to act more democratically? Because I think that what, what her revelations show is that we're living in the United States in a country where we're not, you know, the people are not really very involved, you know, like that we're, um, and by not being involved, I mean, we're complicit in a whole range of um, wrongs and evils and abuses that are happening, right, in our name. And how do we start to be able to democratize the way that we address that, uh, that reality about the wars that continue to be waged? Um, and I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I've been thinking, you know, I'm sure you've read Astra Taylor's book that just came out about um, uh, the title is Democracy May Not Exist, But We'll Miss It When It's Gone. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, her argument is like, what kinds of democratic, well, part of her argument is like, what kinds of democratic debates uh, and arguments could we be having if we had a more equitable distribution of resources, if people didn't feel so precarious, right? And so it feels like the question of how we can start to have a more democratic relationship to truth-telling and to outsider truth-telling is involved with, like, how do we democratize our society so that we can even, like, do that? You've been listening to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. If you would like to hear the extended version of this interview, please consider supporting the show via Patreon. You can find the page at patreon.com forward slash poll theory other. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week.